Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Seguin in conversation with one of those leaders today. All right, well, welcome to Dr. Joanne Hall, our next guest here on our series of Thrive at 20 podcast interviews. We're really excited about having you with us today, Joanne, joining us from Montreal after being a world Canadian traveler of late. So I'm sure you're happy to be sitting in one place in your office in Montreal, not having to be on the road or in some hotel, (laughs) but that's the life as a Pfizer medical affairs director. So let me give folks a little bit of background on you. So um, as I understand it, your official title is a long one, field medical affairs, scientific director of rare disease at Pfizer. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah. So I'm basically the team lead for the field of medical Team. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys really focus in on that rare disease disease area, which I find very fascinating. We had a previous guest that has the same opportunity, uh, bringing rare disease technology to Canadian patients, which is really cool. I think it's an area that perhaps is finally getting a little more attention from the Canadian government and some of the reimbursement folks. Uh, so we're catching up to where maybe we should have been a few years ago. But just to think about the impact that you and your people have on patients and their families, the caregivers, the physicians that are struggling with diagnosing and treating some of these rare diseases. I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the typical patient journey here uh, for the medication that Pfizer is bringing to Canada and already maybe has in Canada in the market here. So can you give us a little bit of background on that space for our listeners who don't know much about rare disease? Yeah, so I would say for a lot of rare diseases, right, the journey to diagnosis is long, um, particularly for adult patients with the diseases. Um, Often it's a constellation of unrelated symptoms that they see different specialists for each of the different elements, but no one has time, I would say, to sit down and put all of these different comorbidities together to really capture the bigger picture um, of what the rare disease could be. So, uh, for instance, in ATTRCM, transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, um, the initial symptoms could start 15 years prior to actually disease diagnosis. Wow. So that's a long time when you're yeah. uncertain, right, about you know, this is bothering me. I've had bilateral carpal tunnel symptoms, uh, surgery to release. Uh, and then it's not until patients are in heart failure um, that they're actually getting the diagnosis um, in quite late stages of heart failure. Uh, so if you could have changed the tra- trajectory of that disease earlier on, um, you wouldn't have that repeated needing to see specialists um, and time away from work, time away from your family, or perhaps limited, um, limiting yourself in some of the things you would naturally be doing in life. Yeah. And what impact do the rare disease drugs have on the patient's experience and on their quality of life? Yeah. So definitely in this instance, it, um, it has an impact on the rate of mortality. So it, it slows down um, deaths due to the disease. It doesn't cure it, um, but it slows down the rate of decline and has a huge impact on the quality of life uh, in their ability to uh, the six-minute walk test, for example, mm. uh, 
you know, that um, being more mobile uh, on your own and being able to be independent um, makes a big difference for patients and families. So what was the motivating factor for you, Joanne, to get into rare disease? Because you, your background is quite uh, powerful, I would say. I, you know, I've had this conversation before, but uh, you're like this Canadian girl from a small town who's done real well. <laughs> you grew up in what? Brockville, no, uh, uh, Prescott, Ontario, right? Yeah. Which, if any of our listeners know the geography well, is right at the bottom of the 416 highway from Ottawa. Is that correct on the 401? 100%. Yeah. Just a little bit east of uh, Brockville. And uh, I know Prescott because when I was a young man playing hockey in high school, they were one of our rivals. So we used to go down and play them. They'd come out and play us. Uh, but yeah, it's a great, beautiful little town on Radley on the, it, now at that point, is it Lake Ontario or is it the St. Lawrence Seaway? St. Lawrence, yes. Yeah, yeah, you Lawrence could River. you could hit a good four iron across to the U.S., right? <laughs> yes, but unfortunately, the river is strong enough that you can't swim across. I I attempted that uh, when I was in high school to try to swim across, but uh, ended up having to jump out of the river and walk with my tail behind my legs back. well i'm sure the customs officials are happy with that strong current in in this day and age but it's such a pretty little town we happened to be there one afternoon when there was a wedding going on down by the water the lakeshore or i guess yeah i guess it would be uh, right down down by that little town hall and the restaurants just gorgeous little place tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in prescott ontario yeah so when i was growing up the population uh, was around 4,000. So mm. when I looked back around the 10-year time frame, it, it never reached 5,000. So you're always fluctuating just, you know, 4,000, yeah. 5,000. Um, our family, when I looked back at the census data, there were five Asians in Prescott. Town of 4,000. Yeah, and we were a family of three. So we were 50%. <laughs> of the Asian population uh, living in Prescott. And, um, you know, when I reflect back, um, definitely at that time, right, like, as you said, very picturesque town growing up, but, you know, it's not without its challenges also. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's limited knowledge about different cultures, at that time when I was growing up like 40 some years ago um you know and so people's experiences are quite different so that's sort of the environment that I grew up in um hugely supportive teachers um you know so that really helped me a lot um but my parents experience was uh different was it difficult Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about their immigration story because i think you you know that my mom came over from poland after the second world war to a northern ontario eventually met my dad in a tiny little town called marathon and then he dragged her to all these little outposts uh to with cp rail i mean it got worse as it went along and then finally they ended up in a town similar size as what you grew up in uh just due north so we were in the chalk river deep river area about the same size now it it tended to be more culturally diverse, which was odd for sort of that eastern northern Ontario area. But because the nuclear plant was there, it it attracted 
talent from around the world. So our little high school was very diverse, but we noticed certainly as in our travels to other high schools like Prescott and Pembroke and Petawawa and Barry's Bay that you're right. It was, it was pretty one dimensional. So it must've been unique and challenging for your parents. So how did they end up in Prescott of all places? Yeah. So my dad came over in his early twenties. So he had met my mother in Hong Kong uh, at a dance uh, in the basement (laughs) of a church. Uh, And it's funny. It's quite cute. Actually. My mom tells me she still remembers when he had asked her for the first dance and he was nervous and she could tell he was shaking. So he was quite shy. Uh, So he came over first and he had asked my mother to wait for him. Mm. So I asked her, what does that mean? What do you, did he propose? Um, So no, uh, because he wasn't well off at the time. He had given her a pair of cufflinks um, (laughs) was what he had of value. And I actually still have the cufflinks and I must admit they're one of the things that I value the most. Sure. Based on those cufflinks, she waited for him. He came first to Brockville because his brother was there working in a restaurant. So he came over, got things set up a bit, and then asked my mother to come, which when I think back, imagine like 50 years ago, no internet, the price of long distance calls, and the only person you know is the boy you met at a school dance who gave you a pair of cufflinks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm just like, if I I did that, it would not be okay. (laughs) What were you thinking? (laughs) And how did you talk your parents into letting you go? Yeah. So basically, that's how they ended up coming. uh, So this is early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Early 70s, they came. They were in their early 20s. Um, At that point, my dad went to technical college, uh, St. Lawrence College, uh, and my mother worked as a seamstress. Um, yeah, for at the time it was Hathaway's, so a shirt company. Well, the shirt company. Yeah. yeah, I used to sell those shirts in high school at the Fraser's Clothing Shop in Deep River. Oh, so, that's, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, so basically she did piecework, right? Where you had to punch a clock to check in. I think it was either seven a.m. seven thirty. Punch a clock. You get paid for every piece that you produce. Um, and it's it's not a pleasant job. It's not no. a teamwork environment. It is very much a sort of survival of the fittest uh, type role. Um, across the street from Hathaway's was RCA. Uh, and beside that on the track, you would see um, the train going by to DuPont. That was the other industry. Um, so it was very much a blue collar town. Yeah. Uh if you didn't have one of those jobs, you were most likely a farmer. Um, so that's sort of my, the environment that I grew up in. Uh, they, you know, uh, there was racism. They faced racism. Um, but I think, you know, for my mother, um, the grace and toughness with which she handled those situations, uh, you know, really imprinted on me uh, a lot Um, and then sort of linking that back to your original question of how rare disease it was I think seeing 
how being the minority, how teachers supported me as sort of the underdog, right? Like always encouraging me, you know, uh, women in science and math, uh, always pushing me and encouraging me to do that, um, to apply for programs um, such as Shad Valley, uh, going to the Ontario Science Center uh, for grade 13, like they encouraged me to do all of that. So sort of that, you know, taking the extra step for the underdog, um, I think that's sort of the other side of a small town, right? Which is you get that tighter community and support from the village and the town that you grew up in. Yeah. I had the same experience and area I grew up in, there was just an extra amount of caring that came from some of the teachers and coaches to boost you forward and to, yeah, nurture you along. Yeah. So that's, it's good because you got the downside of the small town life. Your, your, your dad, then after he got out of St. Lawrence college, where did he end up working? Yeah. So he went to Ross video. Uh, so it's a video switcher uh, production company and he's still to this day works there. Wow. So he's got his 40 year ring or whatever it is, (laughs) (laughs) maybe 50. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Good for him. That's really cool. Yeah. Very much the, the, and and that fighting for the underdog, I think that, that for rare diseases, that's how I see it too. Right. Even though things take so long, there may not be a therapy. Um, Once a therapy is available, how do you make sure that the families that are fighting for those patients, their voice is heard, they get access to care, access to quality care, no matter where you live, if there is a center of excellence, how do we make sure that everyone outside of that center of excellence knows that that center exists so that they can refer in so that patients get diagnosed, get therapy, um, it can be life-changing. Sure. Yeah. And one of the biggest challenges, of course, is reimbursement. Uh, so it's not only getting them the right care at the right time once they're diagnosed and giving them access to the centers of excellence that you guys set up across the country, but gosh, a lot of these technologies, of course, the amount of time and years that, that have gone into creating this kind of dramatic change in their morbidity and mortality comes at cost. So there is an expense there that the system has to bear. So I know how hard you guys work to create reimbursement for patients. That's a whole other difficult issue, is it not? Yeah, it's definitely. But I think it's that it's an awareness on the value that the therapy brings, right? It's not just a cost. It's not just a dollars and cents Mm -hmm. um, issue, right? So imagine in that 15-year, again, the example of ATTRCM, that 15-year journey to diagnosis. How many times has that individual contacted or interacted with the healthcare system, had procedures done, needed to consume a specialist time? Resources. Exactly. Therapeutics, medical devices, yeah, Yeah. pharmacy, consultation, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. There is a there's a real opportunity cost of not getting diagnosis done sooner and starting on treatment. And it's something that I've seen, Joanne, with other rare disease professionals, especially on the industry side, is it takes a certain type of person to flourish in rare disease. And 
there's almost always a story like yours where it's that sort of extra energy to fight for the underdog. Or I remember one case, one of the executives I deal with had someone in the family dealing with that particular rare disease. So that was also an extra motivator because yeah, if you haven't got that extra mojo and fire in your belly, it takes so much energy and effort by so many people to get that patient properly diagnosed with the right treatment professionals in the right order that, uh, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Everybody from your scientific um, liaison officers that report to you to the salespeople that call on the institutions to try to make them aware of the availability of the technology. I mean, there's just a massive army of folks that are behind the scenes operations, administration, the research and development people. God, you're standing on the shoulders of a lot of folks, um, but it takes that commitment from a lot of people in the healthcare system and from Pfizer, in your example, to get that turned around and to get that patient on a therapy to deliver the kind of change, positive change that you were talking about a minute ago. But I have a lot of people who have been curious about the rare disease area as a vocation and when you explain that it's almost the upside down world of big pharma, big pharma is, you know, a small amount of improvement, usually symptomatic improvement. Uh, a lot of people benefiting from the pill or the drug or whatever it might be. Um, it takes, you know, an army of folks to go out and engage with a lot of physicians. And so there's a few prescriptions that come out of each hospital or each clinic. And it all adds up to a lot, but it's a completely different set of mechanics and mindset. And instead of it being, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide, like big pharma, it's the opposite. You're trying to find these needles on a haystack 100%. and set these people up with a process that allows them to filter into the centers of excellence a little more quickly, hopefully exactly. a lot more quickly and, and move from uh, inappropriate or inaccurate diagnosis to more accurate diagnosis, and then hopefully to treatment. You know? So yeah, I really have a lot of respect for it, but it, it's not for everyone. It's not everybody's uh, taste or, or capability set. So, so I, but I want to back up because I'm trying to understand the challenge that you must have faced going from small town like Prescott to being able to get yourself into a great program at McGill with your BSC. So like me, that would be, an, I, I remember thinking, you know, for those of us that graduate in schools around Eastern Ontario, right. There's a few, campuses that stand out that are relative, relatively close to home. Uh, so Queens is certainly one of those U of T perhaps maybe Western, if you want to go that far, but McGill is like, you know, it's right there and it's a world-class institution. So how did you end up getting accepted at McGill for your BSc? You must've been like top of the class because they only seem to take the best. So did you probably had to achieve that level, didn't you at, in your high school in Prescott? Yeah. So, um, right. And, and, and that's, I guess, uh, I was, um, I was one of the top um, at my school when I graduated, right? But again, it's all relative, right? It's a, for lack of a better term, big fish in a small pond, right? Um, yeah. at, when I was going through school, one of the campaigns was uh, to be able to finish high school, to encourage students to finish high school was one of right. the big push this right uh, sure. so it, it is an accomplishment but you know uh, so there must have been a, a bit of an adjustment for you to go from the quote somewhat smaller con well definitely smaller confines of Prescott I was about to say 
somewhat cozier, but in some ways not so cozy. So I'm just trying to imagine what it was like to, for you to walk onto that campus at McGill. Were you living on campus the first year or two in the yeah. dorms? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah. What was that like for you to, 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 to go up that hill? It's a beautiful mountain. If people don't know, McGill sits on the mountain in Montreal in the center of the city, which is an island in the St. Lawrence. And it's absolutely a gorgeous campus. It's like a, a movie set. And I'm sure they've done movies just because of the absolute picturesque aspect of McGill and the buildings being built into the side of the mountain. The residences are gorgeous. Uh, so what was that like for you to go up that hill and go into your room and start your classes and come from a little town of 4,000 people? Yeah. So my biology class was over a thousand. Wow. So you had a thousand students in first year biology, Hundred percent, 25% of the population of Prescott. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you, you feel like a nobody, right? You, you, you literally feel that no one sees me, um, you know, uh, you, you feel unseen. But at the same time, I would say when I graduated from high school, a couple of key things were um, I had a, a scholarship to McGill and I had also gotten uh, the Tomlinson. Uh, it was the first year that they had started um, that bursary. And for me, what that felt like was coming from this small town, someone, someone saw me right? Mm. That someone saw me and was like, you know what? We believe in you. We think you can do it. Here's something to help you with that. Yeah. Do you know the story behind the Tomlinson bursary? No, no I, 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 we got to look that up because that's, you're making me, you're intrigued, intriguing me. And I'm sure the people who are behind it would be so happy to hear this podcast because they're probably wondered what happened to those little students that we gave to when they were 18 years old coming on the campus at McGill and where are they now? Yeah. Oh. No. And I'm, I do remember that I had written um, a thank you letter and I think it was the first year that it came out because it was printed in, in the newspaper and basically it was um, the teacher, one of the teachers in my school that had nominated me for it. Like I, I didn't wow. even, I was not aware of it, um, which is again, right. Another one of those, little nudges that when you're coming from a small town where I saw what my parents did, right? Like I saw my mother going to work in that job at Hathaway's and she made me work there for the summer (laughs) with her. (laughs) That was probably, uh, looking back, I'm sure you appreciate it now, but back then you must've thought to yourself, why am I doing this? Well, it was one of these strongest motivators for me to appreciate that number one that was not going to be my future but at the same time also how much my parents were giving for me for my success right yeah not not just the difficulty of immigrating leaving their the culture they knew and grew up with um having the foresight to do it in their case, probably a good 10 years before the big wave of immigration started from Hong Kong to the other Commonwealth countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, England. Um, but to do it under those circumstances you described, you know, a couple of twenty young 20-year-old kids ending up in small town Ontario, yeah, you must have felt like, wow, my world is so different from the world they experienced 
you know, when you were then in your early twenties at McGill thinking, Oh my goodness, look at the difference between one generation and and what we're going through. So you, you got your undergrad on time. What motivated you to do a master's as quickly as you did and stay at McGill? It was fun. You're having a good time. I, I truly was because, um, so for my undergrad, I did physiology and math. Uh, I had to do the math to bring up my grades. Um, <laughs> and it was just like solving a puzzle, right? Like, here's all the theory that exists. Here's the problem we want you to solve. How you get there is up to you. And doing a master's in research was, the, this, to me, the same thing. It's, natural, it was a natural extension of that same discipline, right? 100%. It's all problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. So it's transferable problem solving where it's a very analytical process like these are all the tools that you have these are all the types of experiments that you could have at your disposal find out the answer is it yes or no and come to a firm conclusion to prove that it's one way or the other Um, so it's very black and white um, but also at the same time right if you get that one thing that's inconclusive that doesn't fit that sort of but why right yeah. that, having the curiosity to exactly unpack that yeah and i think that fits quite well into sort of the field medical and medical field right it's mm-hmm. that when someone says no to you or you know no that's not the way we do it or no the system isn't set up no, the therapy is not going to be available for years down the road. Come back later. You've got to still have that, you know, but why? Like, can you tell me why? The curiosity. Yeah. yeah. And dig deeper. So what is the discipline discipline of physiology? I mean, I would like to understand it more. I'm sure our listeners, some of them would like to understand it more. So how would you describe the discipline of physiology? It's very structured. So it's systems it's all about a closed system right um one thing triggers another what do you do to increase blood flow decrease blood flow you know all of the levers mm-hmm. but what are all the different levers that funnel in to control that lever mm. so it's knowing all of the pathways and connections and knowing them well enough to know if that's the end result you get in one system, one lever is shut down. What other lever can you pull or activate to get the end result you need? So again, yeah. it's very methodical process. Yeah, but a rich and intensive education, right? I mean, no wonder you had to work hard to complete the BSc and then your master's in that discipline. So there you are at the end of your master's and I'm sure you're still having some fun. It's still Montreal, it's still McGill, it's still a great campus and you're in an area that you quite enjoy, but it's a big decision to go get a PhD. Um, You know, that's come up in my family with some of the family members and it's a, it's a, it's a leap of faith. It's a tough decision to make. And there's also trying to find the right opportunity for that with the right mentorship. So why did you stay at McGill and end up getting your PhD there? And, why did you choose the area that you cho- chose? Yeah, so number one, the city is phenomenal. Um, I mean, you can work like crazy, 
you know, finish at whatever hour and there's always something going on in the city. So, <laughs> yeah. Some of the best restaurants don't open until eight or nine o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was definitely one, right? Like you can work as hard as you want and the work-life balance, you just need to find where the party is. And <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to look far in Montreal. That's great. Yeah. But you, you, you chose the discipline carefully, the experimental medicine, especially with the focus on oncology. What led you to that particular choice? Yeah, again, so it was the systems. It's, it's the fact that it's such an analytical, similar to math, right? Like figuring out the path that controls the end result and what are the other possibilities that can lead you there. Uh, that, that freedom to discover um, those answers is truly why. That was a real commitment of time and energy. I mean, from <clears throat> start to finish, you were 10 years on campus. Now it's a great campus. It's a great city. So that's terrific, but it is a 10 year commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, what were the other options you were considering as you went through that level of academic training and commitment? Were there like, what fields did you think about that you chose not to pursue? Or was this pretty much for you a singular attraction and an energy that you knew you were dedicated towards from the beginning? Yeah. So I had considered medicine um, and I had talked to a couple of physicians, so I was quite fortunate uh, for my PhD. I Well, in my undergrad, I also volunteered uh, in a research lab at the Montreal Neurological Hospital. So I got to meet some of the clinicians there and I was talking to them about medicine, um, research versus clinical. And uh, some of the clinicians um, had asked me, you know, what do you think medicine is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I had said to someone, well, someone comes in with the disease, like you, you fix it, you cure it, you solve their problems. And, and that's when they had said, that's not what it is. What they um, say it was, and what did you see? So what they said to me was that it's more like putting a band-aid on a solution um, and that you're continuously trying to put band-aids on solutions. They said, if you want to solve the problem, maybe research hmm. is something. It's an interesting perspective, yeah. Pursue. Um, and like many people, your journey was about being curious and open-minded, but being willing to let doors close. Like I thought I wanted to be in the banking industry because I worked to pay my way through college uh, in the banks on campus and didn't take long getting into the banking stream before I realized, no, no, this is not my thing. <laughs> and I switched my major from finance to marketing, but it's, it's, it's that once you get into it and you ask smart questions and you start to really look at the other end of the pipeline, hopefully you figure that out sooner than later, because many people don't, they dive into a discipline and they have a distorted view of what it really means to work in a particular discipline. So was like you say, you were so lucky to have the opportunity to go to those clinics to work at the Neurology Institute, which is a world class neurology institute. Um, so then the PhD is finally over after a 10 year journey. So tell us a little bit about what happens next. Like, why end up on the industry side? And tell us a little bit about where you went, how you started getting your traction on the manufacturing and R&D side, the science side, the industry, as, as we know, is what we call pharma or life science. So how did that door open for you? Yeah, for sure. 
So during, uh, when I was doing my PhD, one of the findings that I had published on, uh, my supervisor had ended up patenting, uh, which is, you know. That's a big deal. Yeah. So it's, it was very interesting. Um, and then, you know, doing research, what does that mean? What does a patent mean? So I started reading more on it. Um, and then as we were working through it, um, really figuring out what is drug discovery? What does all of that look like? Once, you know, all of the testing, the clinical trials get done, um, reimbursement. And I'm the type of person where if I get curious about things, I just keep going down that path. Um, yeah. You go deep, right? You go, yes. You're almost obsessively, right? You get kind of pulled into it. A hundred percent. And growing up in Canada, healthcare is free, right? Like everything is always paid for. So if a drug has finished clinical trials, of course it should be approved and available to everyone that should have access in that the therapy can cure. So what I couldn't wrap my head around is how in because I hadn't done anything in business up until this point, right? Mm-hmm. So how does the government or a reimbursement body make a decision? That a therapy which could change or cure someone of disease should or should not be covered. Like, if it has a positive impact to me, of course it should. Right. So that's where I got into the interest of the health economics Mm. side of things. Yeah. And started, again, spiraling down that reading (laughs) and... learning about cost effectiveness budget impact models and out of that sort of came my first role out of uh industry or out of my phd which was the health economics uh consulting role um working for a company in toronto where basically it was building uh the clinical flow for budget impact and cost effectiveness models um for pharma companies uh in the u.s Oh, wow. So you got to know the U.S. model fairly well. Now, that was Dimaxium that you were at when you came out of your PhD, right? Did they also serve the Canadian pharmaceutical industry or was it all American? Yeah. So at the time, the dollar for the U.S. was much stronger. So um, all the clients at the time were all U.S.-based. Yeah. Mm, boy, talk about, uh, it's almost like getting a whole nother master's degree, right? You're, yes. you're in with... You're in full, full, you dove right into the deep end of that pool and health economics has become to your curiosity. It has become a major variable in whether all of the money that gets spent on R and D actually ends up manifesting into a country like Canada or the U S for that matter. Does it get to the patient audience that it was intended for in a way that gives patients access and, and improvement? Cause it's all theoretical until it leaves the lab and, goes through the whole chain, the whole value chain, such that it ends up in the hands of the right patients with the right clinical healthcare advice and compliance. And then hopefully the result follows, but boy, what an effort to get it there. And health economics has become a big part of the value chain. So, so that's really interesting that you would take a little bit of that detour, if you will. It's, it's not a traditional uh, way to go, but your curiosity got the better of you and you seem to thrive in that environment from what you've described to me in the past. So 
how do you pivot over to the medical affairs side with Bowringer from Dimaxium? That's yet another twist in your career path, but it's, and it's a bit of an unusual one. So how did that happen? And what was your motivation to be on the medical affairs side with another pharmaceutical company? So I would say the field medical affairs, it's very similar to the luxuries that you have in your PhD in that you get to read scientific literature. I know that sounds geeky, but it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's your geeky, so that's that's what it counts. Yeah. <laughs> it's your thing. Like I study baseball statistics like a crazy yeah. man. That probably should have been where I ended up, but I'm a little <laughs> little bit more than a nerd to my friends, baseball friends. I, I write stupid articles about even the Jays when they got knocked out yesterday. I oh, had gosh. to sit at my computer for an hour and figure out why statistically. Like it's I know it's nuts. So I get your nerdiest. And I'll match it with some baseball nerdiness. So, okay, so here's Joanne, the nerd on the science and medicine side, loving that that's what comes with the territory of medical affairs, because you've got to be more on top of trends and technology than even the clinicians that are practicing medicine in the field. Is that correct? But And that's what's amazing, right? So not only are you get getting paid to read science, they're paying you to go find who is the top person in Canada? Go talk to them. Go ask them their opinion. Go ask them what the gaps are in the healthcare system, in their clinical practice. Go ask them what the issues are, right? But educate yourself so that you know the therapeutic area very well. You yeah. know the assets that's coming. Learn what all those gaps are and try to find, is there a mutually beneficial patient-centric solution that you can work on together. Yeah, and I would say it's one of the hidden value propositions of the life science industry in our economy. Most people who watch the dramas and the TV shows and the stories about, and listen, they always go for the, the media always grabs onto the negative stories. Uh, but what's not talked enough about to the average layperson, I don't think they appreciate how much intellectual horsepower and talent is out there. People like you who engage the system very thoughtfully and are there to eliminate barriers and problems that go beyond the clinician's capability set. Like he or she running a busy medical practice, whether they're a neurologist or an oncologist, look at they're just they're in that wheel of seeing 30, 40, 50, 60 patients a day in a very overtaxed infrastructure. So when someone from Pfizer comes through their door with the level of education and capacity that you have and can say, look, what's not working for you? How can we help solve for it beyond the fact that we're investing in technology, which will hopefully add value to the patient journey and the patient outcomes? That's a huge value proposition from the industry back to the Canadian economy and to the Canadian population. Like as a Canadian, just a, you know, some guy with a business degree, <laughs> we all have health challenges eventually or our families get into them or run into them. And I know the background to some of the great work that medical affairs people do. So I guess I'm more aware of it, but boy, has it ever come up when it's when it's your personal life or someone you know, and you see the journey that they have to go through and the system needs that kind of support to work. And so you and your people do a tremendous job, you know, working with the major clinics and teaching hospitals to, again, not only bring the technology to them, but figure out how do we get the diagnosis 
done earlier and more accurately. How do we get this patient in front of the right care system providers, whether they're physiotherapists or nutritionists or surgeons or um, physicians and diagnosticians? Um, and then once they're on therapy, how do we make sure that they use the therapy correctly with our pharmacist colleagues and that there's patient counseling and support through the patient service programs? Man, there's a whole machine there that most Canadians are, don't have visibility to till it's them. Yeah. them or someone from their family who's going through, uh, you know, an oncology treatment or a treatment for MS or a rare disease. So yeah, I'm, I'm so happy <laughs> as a lay person that people like you have taken all of that brilliance and academic training and now are making such a big impact on our healthcare system. Cause I don't know what we would do without you. Okay. So you, you, so you ended up wanting to move into that space and I, and I get it. Why Bowringer Ingleheim? Because that's a Toronto company, right? Did you stay in mm-hmm. Toronto? And how did they get on your radar? Like, what, 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 what was the attraction to connect with them and work for them? Do you remember back to the choices you made at that time? I. It was just applying for jobs at that point. Yeah. So you knew medical affairs was an area, and you yeah. sort of looked at the landscape because you were in Toronto at that time. So what's here? And of course, they're one of the bigger employers in the Toronto life science industry. So, and I hear a lot of good things about them as a company, good culture. What, what was your experience like there? What, what did you take from that experience? Yeah. So, so Bowringer, a lot of people don't know this, but Bowringer Ingleheim, it's privately owned. So it's a privately Mm. owned uh, company Mm. and um, they're quite entrepreneurial in a lot of um, the initiatives that they take. Uh, And in that, you can you have the luxury of being very entrepreneurial, right? Um, You're not unafraid to take risk and try new things, new ideas. Yeah, that's why I hear about them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and you sort of similar to like in consulting, you you kind of become the jack of all trades. I would say um, you don't just do your job and fit your mold. It you have that flexibility to branch out and again be curious, right? Like pitch an idea. If you believe in something and you can sell it and get the right stakeholders to see um, or have the time to listen uh, to your vision, um, there, there's not, there's not a, you know, a firm no. It's more of a how could we, uh, which is a great mindset to have. And they gave you a chance to move from being at the community level at the clinical level is an, what we call an MSL in the industry of medical scientific liaison, which people from the science industry will recognize are generally based outside the office. They're field-based as we call it. Uh, they have a geography that they're responsible for a disease area, and then they get out and interact with the physicians and clinicians and also work with the R and D teams above them to make sure clinical studies are happening in Canada and help to guide those relationships, all of that interesting stuff. But then Bowringer opens up the door for you to move into a management role, a little higher responsibility. So tell me a little bit about that decision and why, you know, the healthcare affairs manager's role for you. What was the attraction? Yeah. So I must say the, uh, when I was in the MSL role at Bowringer, I basically covered from BC all the way to Manitoba. Uh, Wow. Beautiful places. I was able to travel that, you know, often I would have never thought of going. Um, 
but it was really making sure that everyone possible knew about this new therapy that was available. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I find um, in the West and with Bo Ringer, it, it was always that, well, why can't we mindset? So mm. very much entrepreneurial, project-based, um, pushing initiatives forward. Um, you know, and people were saying, you know, what you're kind of doing seems like uh, the health affairs manager type role. You're kind of doing um, a hybrid role because in the MSL world, we didn't really have budget to lead projects so you would form them to a certain way and then it kind of didn't fit in the medical affairs strategy anymore um so that's why i moved uh into the healthcare affairs manager role because you actually had a budget and could lead projects that would have a bigger impact yeah what was the your most favorite project that you worked on in that role do you remember yeah so Alberta has a provincial EMR. So imagine, like in Ontario, um, it's gotten better. There are larger EMR systems that are dominant in certain institutions. Yeah. But in Alberta, everything is connected within one provincial EMR. So the optimization that you could do for misdiagnosis, um, you know, improper therapy management um, is, is huge. So it was basically bringing together a multidisciplinary team uh, across Alberta. So Edmonton, Red Deer, Calgary at the time, because those were the- you know, Everything from major teaching hospitals like Foothills to the community-based Exactly. Right? For the so whole province. And the mix that and the geography there, there's quite a mixed geography of larger uh dominant cities like Calgary and Alberta, but then the mid size and then the small towns. And it's yeah, quite an interesting, challenging geography for that system to be able to support. So EMR just for our listeners is oh electronic medical record. Yeah. Which you know again. It, we've been talking about it as long as I've been in the industry, <laughs> what's that, almost 40 years. And now you're starting to finally see the breakthroughs. So you must have really enjoyed working on that project. Yeah. And the fact that everyone was willing to come to the table, they weren't paid. They huh. came to the table to sit down to talk about what could be done, came up with the strategy and, and implemented it. Yeah. And they were, as I understand it, really the leading jurisdiction in Canada. Is, is that your recollection of it too? They yeah. really were the thought leaders and have then subsequently influenced the other provinces in their execution. So, well, that must've been a lot of fun. Okay. So you're having fun. So how in the world did you end up at a bigger pharma company like Pfizer and in Montreal? That's two big changes at once. So tell me a little bit about that decision-making and what was the motivation to make that switch? Yeah, so it was it was actually a clinician. So the product that I was working on at the time, he was the trialist, the lead trialist in Canada when I was at Bowringer. Um, he was the lead trialist for that uh, therapy. therapy. Uh, and he said to me, you know, there's a newer agent at Pfizer. He's like, I know you're not going to believe me but it's way better than the one that you're working on. 
<laughs> so it was a combination of that. He kept bugging me every time that I would try to see him. That was what he kept saying to me. Um, and also one of my colleagues who worked at Bowringer in the field had actually moved to a medical director position at Pfizer. Um, so sort of in our discussions of, um, and she would challenge me with questions like, you know, in our role, do you feel as field medical, we're delivering value? Are we delivering enough value? Um, and so through the things that we had talked about when, when she went to Pfizer, she said, you know, I'm at a company now where I feel the values are aligned with my beliefs that are similar to a lot of the things you and I had talked about. Um, and they've got this great drug. Uh, and I'm like, yes, I've heard a thing or two about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like this double whammy, uh, probably also returning to a city you were very familiar with. So there was probably at least three big reasons to open your mind to that opportunity, the quality of the technology the culture of the company and then the fact yeah. that you get to go back to Montreal it's one of the, because a world-class city, not that Toronto isn't great, but Montreal has a certain, I'm sure a certain place in your heart, right. From that time at McGill. Yeah, for sure. And my, one of my main drivers, I would say for moving back to Montreal, uh, it's closer to my parents. My parents are only two hours away yeah, as opposed yeah. to a four hour flight, a two hour drive. Um, and my two best friends that uh, I went to McGill undergrad with, I've known for over half my life, they're here. Um, so it's just closer to everything that's important to me. Oh, that's terrific. Now, I want to highlight, because I've been bragging about you and your team, to other folks who ask about best practices. You're, you've made a couple of job moves since you've been at Pfizer. I think it's almost like nine years and a bit. And And one of the things that I think has been one of the reasons why you seem to have and your, you and your team seem to have a very enterprise wide mindset. Like it's, it, you're not suffocated to, to stay in your own little lane and do your own little siloed thing. You guys tend to think on behalf of the whole system, patients, families, caregivers, physicians, clinicians, institutions, and then also Pfizer as a, as a, as an employer, as a partner or a stakeholder, if you will. And I think some of that comes from the fact that you pushed yourself to do some different things leading up to that point. And then you also went over to what some medical people would call the dark side. You went over to the commercial sales and marketing side for a while and did some brand management, which that's a very rare piece. And I think it has given you a different perspective than many who stay in the vertical. It's like if you stay only in sales your whole career, you don't maybe fully appreciate other functions in the company, how important they are, marketing, finance, HR, R&D, medical affairs. But your more twisted turning road from McGill to where you are now, I think has made for a richer perspective and you've attracted people in your team that seem to have that same rich, broader perspective. And I, I want to really highlight the fact that one of the challenges that people in your vocation have is how do you demonstrate the value that you're bringing to the system, to the stakeholders, right? Because unlike other disciplines within big pharma who have clear metrics and KPIs, like we know a salesperson's good because they can grow revenue for a product and build the customer base. We know marketing people are good because they can advance the image of a brand. 
and they can make the asset worth more money. You know, finance people are good because they get the reports done accurately. The tax is paid on time. They help the company use its financial resources more effectively. There's all these pretty standard takeaways and KPIs. Medical affairs does not have that traditionally. It's all, it's, it's, it can either be sometimes underappreciated or not, no, I would say more commonly underappreciated and sometimes overappreciated. I think that there's a bit of a scale there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I think your team has done, and you've led the charge on this, is let's think constructively about what is it that we do that does bring so much value to the system. And I want you to explain this concept of the innovation ladder to our audience, because some people listening to this are going to have a real familiar uh, perspective on the industry and maybe are scratching their heads with, well, what does medical affairs do anyway? Because it seems like there's a lot of people over there. I don't really fully understand or appreciate their value proposition, but I think your your laddering concept is, is a very powerful one. And you know, I've shared that with a couple of folks in the industry who are non-competing because it is a huge breakthrough. So can you give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it was in one of the sessions, right, that um, you had, uh, we had with my team and it was basically how do we as a rare disease field medical team want to be seen by the organization? That was sort of the big mm-hmm. dream. Big question, I, yeah. Yeah that we were trying to give the answer to. And anyone in medical will know the challenge is always, how do you demonstrate the value of medical, right? Like Mm -hmm. you hear from so many um, other functions that are not your own, right? Medical is an expensive headcount, right? Like I I remember when I joined a company uh, and unfortunately I was onboarded right at the time when sales colleagues were being let go. And one of the sales reps in my territory said, wow, they must think your position's pretty important because they just fired two of my colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So no, this is exactly the environment that we sometimes find ourselves in is it's so much easier for most of the other functions to clearly point to objective measures of value that are commonly accepted, but field medical struggles has struggled with that. And I just think you're, ideas were breakthrough, innovative, and they, they work. So tell us a little bit about the conceptual ladder concept that you guys came up with. Yeah. So the thought was really to measure the value that medical affairs provides is what is the clinician that you're visiting? What is their thought process? Do they believe that currently in that therapeutic area, there is an unmet need, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of, you could say, the first rung of the ladder, as it right. were, right. which applies to any therapeutic area. Right. Is there a reason to challenge the status quo? That's the first step. A hundred percent. So is there a belief that zero, no, not likely, or are they completely on board a five? Yes, they believe uh, maybe nothing exists, which is often the case for rare disease, right? Nothing exists. So we mm-hmm. need something right now. So do they agree that there's a clear unmet need or is there a clinical challenge, right? Do they see the value? Do they believe in the efficacy and the safety of the asset um, that you Or the technologies that are available 
or are coming, and yeah. particularly from your R&D function, right? So there's that open scientific medical exchange, right? In that second rung on the ladder. Yeah. And okay. So, but what's the ideal outcome at that part of the adoption curve or ladder? What, what yeah. would you hope is the rung that they reach on the ladder at that point? Yeah. So, so basically the goal would be if the medical individual knows they're currently at this rung, but we know there's something different. What publications do we have to support the belief to move them further into believing that there is a clear unmet need? Okay, now they know there's a need. Are they aware of the new clinical trials that are available? Have right. you shown it to them? No, they're not aware. So maybe you okay, should show right. them that data. So you begin, you know, the discussions on the data. Do they have issues maybe with safety? They're not sure. So what publications or data do you have to demonstrate the safety of the asset? So through those sort of guided um, conversations, you can then see the growth um, of using, you know, whether it's slide presentations, maybe it's additional work needs to be done because we truly don't have an answer. Like maybe a safety or efficacy question comes up that we never thought of. Maybe. A yeah. So it's a, so it's an iterative process and there's feedback loops coming both ways. So the clinicians that are on the other side of the conversation are advancing their thinking, their knowledge of the space, the technology that's on the horizon. And as someone who represents a player like Pfizer or Bowringer, you're also listening to the exchange coming the other way and then feeding that back into the value chain. So, hey, here are some issues that they're worried about, concerned about that affect patients on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so, okay, that's the second rung. Okay, what happens from there? Yeah, and then so once they agree on the safety and efficacy of your asset, do they believe that your asset is the one for that unmet need? Mm, okay. okay. And that's often the responsibility at that point, I suppose, of the commercial organizations once the product has been approved for sale in a particular country like Canada. So let's say, I don't know, let's use neurotoxins as an example, because I know that space a little bit. So the medical folks would have tremendous amount of conversation with the disciplines that were interested in using neurotoxins for a variety of applications. So migraine, back pain, spasticity, cerebral palsy comes to mind because it's when we all think about kids who have those motor function uh, challenges. And I remember before the indications were approved in Canada, our medical team was really good at having those laddered conversations like you were talking about. And it allowed it, it sort of set the stage that when the government approved our brand, our neurotoxin, it wasn't we, like we weren't starting from a blank piece of paper of zero foundation. There was a lot of good conversation already happening. There was a almost an excitement that had been set up and an enthusiasm to for the clinicians to start being able to bring neurotoxins into the mix of solutions and treatments for kids with cerebral palsy or with patients suffering from migraine or adult spasticity post-stroke. Yeah. Okay. So that helps me sort of see the bigger picture. And what I really like about you guys taking a very thoughtful and progressive approach to this question of how do we measure it? You can sort of see that this would be something that you could objectively see the milestones in the relationship. 
right? And you kind of know, well, what, well, have we been able to uh, do a good job preventing the clinical evidence around safety and efficacy? And if there are still gaps, we need to take responsibility for those gaps. That's our job is to bring that data and those insights to the awareness of the of the practitioner. So I love it. I, I, I think it's such a novel approach. It's, um, it really does show not only the value to Pfizer, but to the prescribing communities and the institutions and to the society. Like I think back to when we were trying to bring neurotoxins into migraine 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I have someone in my family that, you know, has benefited from, from injections for uh, 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 an accident he had on the, on the hockey rink. And, you know, so there it is 15 years after we first had our medical people investigating this and talking to Canadian clinicians. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is how these things get into the hands of Canadian physicians and our, our community is there's so much legwork that needs to be done. And it, you can't wait for the government to, you know, give a, uh, an okay at the health protection branch and then suddenly everybody has access access to the drug no that doesn't it's not how it works there's a lot of work that goes on before those applications are submitted and then when they hopefully get approval if that's the outcome so much needs to be done to prepare the groundwork for patients to start to receive the therapy so that better explains the whole value proposition but what a great use of the education i mean i i think one of the things that I really like about your work is I think about the journey you took from Prescott to Montreal 10 years and the twists and turns between health economic research and a little bit of work on the branding side and then the scientific community. And then now you're working for a company whose culture matches your values, which is terrific. You seem to be given lots of opportunity. And if I'm not mistaken, did you not get, uh, globally recognized you and your department for some of the innovation. Wasn't there not an award this year? I know you're a very modest person, but would you please tell us a little bit about that recognition? Yeah, thanks for uh, mentioning that. Yeah, I am. Um, one of my colleagues had nominated me for uh, one of the 100 most inspiring women um, at Pfizer. Uh, so, yeah, that was a very nice uh, recognition that I had about. Well, congratulations. And the other thing I know that that did is it made people curious about, well, what, what's the team from Canada doing that has caused you to get on the radar? And I, it sounds like some of the innovation that you've done to help the Canadian system applies as much to other jurisdictions, especially those that have a socialized medical model like we do, so the European countries. And so I, I, I've come to understand that you're getting some inquiries from outside of Canada as to some of the things that you and your team are doing. And you know, I'm a proud Canadian. It's always great to see that Canadian expertise being exported elsewhere. Has that been uh, rewarding for you and for the team? Yeah, it it, it really has because um, one of the things that I don't think we spoke about was um, in, in the current role that I am. It I basically was able to build a new team. So. Everyone that is in role now, except for one, um, were not previously Pfizer colleagues. Okay. Uh, so building a new field team that is just shy of being a year and a half old, um, having, you know, sort of when our uh, global medical lead came, you know, sort of jot down when I had 
presented that scientific ladder that was really something the team came up with as a solution of how do we demonstrate value, uh, you know, and, and the team ranges from those who are right out of their PhDs to those who are seasoned colleagues, but the teamwork and collegiality of problem solving, um, everyone values and opinion or sorry everyone's opinions are valued so it's that challenging each other to do better um you know it's that environment that we're all i think thriving in and loving yeah and you know people who are listening to this podcast that manage teams and departments know that to have a world-class outcome like that in 18 months with a team that you have to form from scratch is no small feat like there's usually stages that everybody knows the norming, forming, storming with teams, all that stuff that's been written about. Um, but I was really impressed as I watched you guys come together that I thought you and your colleagues did a good job of recognizing the big ideas, like being courageous enough to say, well, what can we do that would be substantially important? What's the best scenarios we can think of? It takes courage to use the word ideal scenarios because it's scary. Then you got to live up to the ideal. But I saw a lot of bravery in that conversation. And then there were a couple of ideas. And what I really liked about your team was the discipline to pick a few, not to get get out over your skis and end up doing a lot of things in a mediocre way. There was a real concerted effort to pick a couple things that you knew you could all get excited about and lean into and leave other things for the future. But pick a couple of things like the scientific laddering concept and a few other things. And so that I think is a, real compliment to your team and your leadership to, to, to understand how important that is. And then I really like the diversity I see in your group, like your cultural values might be the same. And I know they are because of the conversations we've had, but what a diversity of background and experiences, cultures, and, you know, demographics. Um, It's such a powerful group in terms of the energy of the conversations that we have because of those perspectives and the intelligence that's there. But yet there's a, there's a surprising amount of discipline too to say we're not just going to be idea people because we're all very smart. Um, all of you have proven through your academic training you can handle a tremendous amount of that rigor. But I'm so excited about spending time with you and your folks because you also can then thrive in the corporate world that you've signed up for. Because every environment, it's like a game. Every game has rules, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have stayed in academics, right? You could have stayed in health economics. Your people could have stayed in different places that that they'd worked in before, but you signed up to be medical affairs professionals working for a large multinational pharmaceutical company in rare disease in Canada. And it comes with certain rules. Uh, And if you want to be successful, you know that accountability to creating value is going to be a measured there's a lot of accountability in the private sector. So I love the way you guys embrace that. And didn't complain about it because I do find that there are times where functions do complain about, well, you know, it sucks that we have to have that. Well, yeah, but that's what you signed up for. And if you don't want that rigor, then choose a different vocation or go, go into a different space. But if you're going to work in the private sector, accountability is a big part of the game. And so recognizing that you have to embrace it, and coming up with something that is appropriate for your value proposition, and then also being willing to share that with your colleagues, right? To not just hoard that 
breakthrough idea, keep it to just the little Canadian team, but share it with others, I think is also a, a nice, a nice compliment to you and your team. So yeah, I, I, I've had the honor of working with dozens of medical affairs teams in my 20 years of being in Thrive. And the reason we picked you to be on our podcast was I think you're, you're probably the right now, one of the top three I've ever met in terms of the team, your leadership style, the amount of value you guys have created in a short period of time. It is really something that resonates with me and stays in my mind when other people ask me for, well, what do other people do? And I, I find myself using you guys as a reference point a lot. So I really want to thank you, Joanne, for joining our podcast series and sharing your journey and some of the unique challenges of growing up in the environment you did, but thriving through academic and also your professional life. So very pleased. Now, we always do this with our guests. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything that we should chat about for a few minutes here at the end? Hmm. Well, we're Canadians, so we can talk about the weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do that. And it's hockey season around the corner. Yeah. Hockey indeed. and curling. Yeah. And we could bring in Tim's too. That'd be very convenient. That's it. Round oh. it out. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. I... Again, thanks for your time this afternoon. Really appreciate it. And I know those, I hope you inspire other young people, young girls, especially young girls who face the kind of challenges you faced as someone ethnically diverse in a small, pretty waspy town. And uh, look at you now. Like, it's just so great to see you flourishing and for lots of reasons, but that one in particular always, uh, always really gives me a smile. So again, Appreciate your time and we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, Rob. Bye, Joy.